Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I am your host, Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. There's something I've been wanting to talk about since... I read in the Come Follow Me manual at the beginning of this year that we are responsible for our own learning. I thought we could talk about that. We could have a conversation about that, about spiritual independence, if you will. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, that that particular quote you just mentioned is really the impetus for creation of the Come Follow Me program within the church. Essentially, in 2018, President Nelson gives this conference talk. I think it was the introduction or the opening up of conference where he talks about this home-centered, church-supported structure that's going to be created and implemented that will kind of carry the church through its next century or whatever. And so that quote, we are each responsible for our own individual spiritual growth. That quote became kind of the jumping off point for Come Follow Me and in the last few years and everything else. Gosh, you could lump the pandemic in that and all the other stuff that's happened as a result of that and people kind of taking on more spiritual autonomy. Do you think that's happening, Chris? I hope so. I know that for a lot of us, this is all anecdotal, but in my own experience and the experience of some of the people I've talked to, and I've talked to a few people about this, they really enjoyed having church at home. You told me a story about someone who said something like that yeah. in pre-show discussion. Well, it's in the same talk, actually. In the same introductory talk that President Nelson gives, he he recounts the experience, I assume it's in some other country, along one of his journeys to various churches and church members, where he talks about meeting with a family, and he's talking to the wife. And due to their circumstances, I just had to assume it was probably health-related, they were doing church at home, including blessing and passing the sacrament. Again, this is 2018, pre-pandemic. And he asked the woman, you know, how do you, how do you enjoy it? Do you like it? And she says, I like it very much. And one of the reasons why she said that is she noticed that her husband made a greater effort towards making their home a sanctuary, a sacred space because of the ordinance of the sacrament that was going to be performed there once a week. And so I think that's instructive. That does a lot for me in terms of opening up for me the possibilities of what a home-centered church looks like. I love that. I can relate to that too on a personal level. I think about, if I think about my living room, you know, it doesn't have to be one thing. There's the living room that we go sit down to watch a movie in, and there's the living room that we had sacrament meeting in during the lockdown, right? And they're different living rooms, even though it's the same place, it's a different space. You know, so for the record, Riley, I know you know this, but this idea of home-centered, church-supported gospel instruction isn't new. It doesn't come from 2018. When Stephen Covey wrote his book, The Divine Center, he mentioned this idea of 
church-supported, home-centered gospel study as something that was already old news. So this is something that's been a long time coming. Yeah, I've got the copyright date on this Stephen Covey book I've got, The Divine Center of uh, 1982. So early 80s, yeah. All the way back in 1982, if you look at that book, you'll find that it was already old news. Nothing new here. But we finally got there during the pandemic, right? During the lockdown phase in particular. And I feel like there was sort of a reaction to that almost. You know, when we came, we started to emerge from the pandemic phase. And I think there was a lot of people that really enjoyed having church at home, myself among them. I loved doing church at home. I loved blessing and passing the sacrament to my own family. I did feel like there was a difference in the feeling in my home when we had home church. And so I can very much relate to this woman that President Nelson spoke with and her experience. How about you? Same here. Yeah. You know, I'm not advocating this, but some of the people I talked to even left the church, right? They just realized when they weren't going to church and when they were having their church meeting at home that they didn't need the church, as they put it. That's a strong feeling, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we started emerging from that, you know, after the pandemic was waning. And I think there was quite a few people who, like you said, you know, they just wanted to keep doing what they were doing. They liked it so much. And the church sort of like tried to rein in these these feelings and these new experiences that people were having and, and saying, okay, well, you know, you're no longer authorized to do sacrament in the homes, carte blanche. You know, there might be individual circumstances where that's warranted. And I also think that that is important because you no know, man is an island. We are a social people and having communitarian experiences in the gospel is every bit as if if not more important than having just individual experiences in the gospel. So I think you need a healthy balance of both. And so maybe the pendulum swung both directions too far, but I think there's certainly a place for a more home-centered church. Absolutely. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, Riley. I know I've talked to other people who said that they're still in the church for the community. So that's the opposite, right? Right. And I remember my neighbor during the lockdown phase before I moved, it's a Baptist preacher who insisted on having meetings all throughout the lockdown phase because, as he put it, ecclesia, which is the Greek word where church comes from, it's not so obvious. It's more obvious with the Spanish iglesia comes from ecclesia, right? But the idea of church is a gathering. If there's no gathering, there's no church. Church isn't an institution. It's not a building in your neighborhood or even in Salt Lake. It's a gathering of the community of the faithful, of the community of Christ. Where one or two are gathered in my name, right? Exactly. And when Jesus says your body is a temple, that you, as many other yous that we don't realize because you is ambiguous in English, is actually plural. The body of Christ is broken and torn to pieces in the sacrament, as we've pointed out before on this podcast. And then it's remembered, meaning the members are brought back together within the body of Christ, which is that community of Christians. So let's jump into this idea a little bit about the individual nature of spiritual development, because this is a different thing, right? I mean, we can definitely incorporate communitarian experience, but in the end, we're responsible for our own spiritual development and the direction that that goes. And I actually love that President Nelson, that he rolled this responsibility off of the church, because I think for too long, and maybe this is not true for everyone in terms of their experience inside, outside Utah or the, you know, the Mormon bubble, whatever. But I think for too long, we've relied so heavily on the church to supply our spiritual education, our religious education. 
and be the key cog in this wheel of spiritual development that, you know, we've kind of lost sense of our own responsibility in this regard. Yeah, you know, even though we don't have church in our living room anymore and the Hurtado home, we still have family scripture study and there's come follow me discussion, right? And that discussion led by me, we're not going into this in church. People go to church and they're expecting and they're always asking, where's the meat, right? Well, first of all, you know, are you ready for meat? That's one question. Have you, you know, have you put in the, the work? Have you really even, you know, tasted or, or fully comprehended the milk? But if you are ready for meat, it's up to you individually to go search it out. And it's up to us as fathers, Riley, to bring that kind of instruction to our family. That's what we've been taught. Well, and another step in weaning, I think, church members away from this idea that the church is this source of your gospel instruction is is compressing the schedule down from three hours to two hours and going every other week with, you know, Elders Quorum Relief Society and Sunday School, right? Basically saying, if you're doing it right in the home and you're instructing your family, then you don't need three hours in a building every week. I don't know how much further we'll go with this, whether we'll continue to be weaned from that later on down the road or whether we're just kind of going to stay at this this place we're in right now. Nevertheless, that was that was one thing that was indicated to me in that move is that, you know, again, we're rolling off responsibility for your spiritual development back onto you. It's up to you guys. So if we're if we're jumping into this, you know, one of the things I would say is that maybe we weren't as empowered coming off of, you know, decades and decades of the church being the source of our spiritual instruction. Maybe we weren't as empowered as we needed to be going into this new phase of independence and and personal responsibility. So what are, you know, where do we go from here? What are some of the tools that we need to be able to progress spiritually and and continue to, to develop? Yeah, that's a really good question, Riley. And for me, you know, it actually hasn't been my own practice or experience or intent or approach that I go to church for somebody to tell me. You know, I took it upon myself a long time ago to go find out for myself. And I want to bring in at this point too, I've heard from people who feel like the church has lied to them, right? Because they didn't know X, Y, or Z. And I always say, you know, I mean, I've, I've come to be more compassionate and, you know, sympathetic and understanding of people who have those feelings. And I, I think I understand them better than I used to. But at the same time, I, I think I can still say they hide this stuff in books. Right? And, and it's not just books, even books published from the church itself. You know, I can think of, for example, around the time that the last edition of the Book of Mormon came out, and people may not even realize this, but the church made six changes to the Book of Mormon. I can't tell you what they are. I don't remember. But they made six changes. I'm not saying there are substantive changes necessarily, but there were six changes that were made. Around the same time, I heard Royal Skousen lecturing. He gave a series of three lectures at BYU based on his work of two decades of coming up with the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. And the earliest text of the Book of Mormon has 600 differences from the one the church published with six differences right? Either one, whether you, maybe we could subtract those six and it would be 594. I don't know. But the point is there are a lot more differences than six, but it's not the church's place to move at that speed. Churches are conservative institutions, and yet the church owns the university, BYU, where this scholar who's doing this work is lecturing. 
and he's allowed to lecture there. His book was published by Yale. It's called, what is it called? The Book of Mormon, the Earliest Text? I think that's right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree somewhat that, you know, you can you can take the approach and just say, well, they hide this stuff in books. But I think there's a developmental path that helps people to not only feel empowered, but to know where to go to find, like, which books do we go to, to find these truths, right? What are the sources? Help us out. Absolutely. Because, you know, especially when you're in what, what might be called your spiritual nascent child stage, you just have no clue. You're you're 100% reliant and dependent upon others to kind of feed you the information you need to get through the initial stages of development. And so you kind of need to know where to begin, which practices to incorporate early. You set certain expectations for where you'll be at various ages. And so we have these developmental paths within the church, which I think are appropriate, where you go from, you know, the 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 primary age to the young men, young women age, and and so forth through through a series of steps of ascent to try to gain knowledge and, and instruction and give you a roadmap for where to go moving forward into your more independent years. It's very much, I think, just like the development of, of children in a household. Yeah, I'm no expert on child development. I think my wife has a better intuition than I do, even if she lacks any kind of other kind of expertise other than her own authority. And yet we disagree. And, and you know, I think when it comes to my children, you know, I actually tell them things. So there's an approach that I take. I want my children to come into contact with anything controversial at home with me. There's another approach you could take that says, well, they're children. Let's not have them deal with that yet. I don't agree with that approach to each his own, but that's not the approach I take. I want to deal with these things head on together. But there's still pace, isn't there? You don't reveal the whole world to them when they're five years old head on. Like there's still a pacing. To no, it. no. I mean, all my kids are teens now. I should have mentioned that, right? They're 14 and older. One of the things, you know, that we deal with as Latter-day Saints too, as I mentioned before, is people, you know, feeling like they've been lied to and they couldn't, you know, I say it's hidden in books. And another thing I've heard is, well, I feel like I can't go to those books or they don't even, that's not even a feeling they have. They just, they don't go to those books. You, don't, you said they don't know where to look. Of course, there are so many sources, which one should I trust? And so there's a tendency to only trust the inside sources. And where does that leave us? I mean, I'll give you an example. On the one hand, you know, from a scholarly point of view, from my point of view as a scholar, I can go to my bookshelves and I can see all my LDS books and I can say there are exceptions, although there are few. If you've read one, you've read them all because there tends to be sort of this echo chamber. It's sort of a closed loop, right? If you want to read about the historical Jesus, as close as you're going to get, if you stay within that bubble, is going to be Jesus the Christ. Well, Jesus the Christ, I don't know if people realize this. This is based on a book that's a secular book, you know, on the historical Jesus by Farrar, which is outdated. And so nowadays, if you're LDS and you're writing a book and you want it to be published by Deseret Book and you're writing about Jesus, you have to stick to that script. Well, that script is outdated. We have better scholarship. We have a better understanding of the historical Jesus. And so maybe this earliest stage of individual spiritual development is a time for us to arm our kids with the tools they need to be able to critically reason more so than give them the specific sources for where they're going to derive their knowledge from. That's just a thought. I mean, 
the church again would would suggest you know stick to the approved or inside sources so you don't get led astray well i think that's good advice for someone in the infancy of their development like it's very easy to get distracted or persuaded in one direction or another especially if you don't have that ability to reason right that's it right so to evaluate the sources right right yeah I'm surprised sometimes as a professor, you know, and even as a father, a homeschool dad, you know, I'm surprised sometimes by, I guess I have to remember there was a time when I didn't know how to evaluate sources any more than my students, right? We have to learn to evaluate sources. And how do you develop some of those tools? Everybody saying something is saying it in a context. That's one thing, right? Anything that's said is said in a context. And so dropping the context is one of the most serious mistakes that you can make in thinking. And so you want to know, what's the context of this? Who's saying this? Why are they saying it? When are they saying it? If I'm studying science and I look at the publication date, you want something recent, right? You just don't, you're not going for the older stuff, unless it's out of a curiosity for the history of the development of ideas, right? I'm always interested in the history of ideas and their development. But if I'm looking for what's the latest understanding then I'm going to later books. You know, we read from the King James Bible, and that probably has more to do with the fact that the language of the King James Bible permeates the translation of the Book of Mormon than anything else, right? It would be awkward otherwise. But when it comes to serious study of the Bible, with the King James scholars having lesser manuscripts than the ones scholars today have to work with, it just doesn't make sense to study from King James Version. I use it for devotional reading. I memorize from it, but I don't use it when I'm studying seriously, right? I want better manuscripts, better translation. Now, the translation that the King James scholars did is excellent with what they had to work with. To give you an example, Erasmus put together the best manuscripts that he could for the King James scholars, and some of the books they wanted to translate into English were not available in the original Greek. So he took and back translated from the Vulgate, which is a Latin translation into Greek and gave them that. Well, that's not the best manuscript that you can come up with. It was for him, maybe, but not for us. We have better manuscripts than that. And we have things like the Dead Sea Scrolls showing up. We have things like the Gnostic Gospels showing up. And these are things that have just shown up in the last, what, 50 years? Maybe 70? I get what you're saying there in terms of that specific context and and teaching your kids how to ask questions about context, ask themselves questions about the context of what they're reading. And so maybe that kind of fits within this idea of using maybe the Socratic method as a tool or dialectical back and forth exchange as a tool for helping kids to reason. And that may seem like, you know, those are advanced methods or tools to try to impart to children, but they're really not. It's just teaching your kids to ask more questions, right? Yeah. You know, we, as Latter-day Saints and as Americans and Latter-day Saintism is, is American, we have a propensity to love to have answers. As a philosopher, I value questions over answers. And if I look at the whole history of philosophy, what we call the great conversation that begins with Plato and Alfred North Whitehead says is just off footnotes to Plato, then all of the questions that have been raised, I find value in them. Some of the answers I find value in, oftentimes the answers, I feel like they're not valuable, but the questions are. The questions remain valuable, even if the answers that have been given have proved less valuable. Well, and the work that goes into pursuing answers is also as valuable if you were to separate that as a separate category unto itself. 
Yes. You, you've got the question, you've got this answer, but what about the process of arriving at answers? Even that can be very valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the journey, not the destination. So we have to learn to value questions. We have to learn to value the journey itself, the spiritual journey that we're on, which by the way, is individual anyway. There's a favorite quote that I often quote on this podcast from Rumi. There are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. Of course there are. There's my path. There's your path. There's her path. There's his path, right? We each have our own path. And so I remember there was a time, at least, if not today, there was a time when we heard from the general authorities of the church that a couple of things, right? One was when the brethren have spoken, there's nothing more to be said. The thinking is over. Right? No more questions. The thinking has been done. We actually got a version of that recently, maybe a lighter version that says you can only ask questions about things that we haven't told you the answers. At least that was what was suggested. I don't take that as gospel truth. You know, I ask questions, period. That's just what I do. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to question everything. You know, I remember a favorite quote of mine from Thomas Jefferson writing to his nephew, Peter Carr. And Jefferson tells his nephew, Peter Carr, he says, question everything with boldness. This is a paraphrase. He says, even question the very existence of God, because if there is a God, surely he would appreciate your actual questioning, right? Your actual doing the work, so to speak, this this work that you mentioned, Riley, that we have to do to seek answers, the pursuit of truth, more than blind obedience. Obedience is fine, but blind obedience? One of the greatest figures in all of human history, all of human thought, a Muslim thinker who died in 1111, Al-Ghazali, made it his life's work to wake up his fellow Muslims not to tell them not to follow the prophet, so to speak, right? The prophet Muhammad, but to not follow him blindly, that you don't do things because this is our custom, this is our tradition, this is our culture, this is what we've always done, but because you actually are thinking about what you're doing. And that's important for another reason. It's because not only are you really at choice, not only are you really pursuing a path of your own free will and volition, and you're not doing it blindly, you're doing it awake and intentionally, that intention makes all the difference, right? It's not just I'm doing the things, I'm doing them with the intent to get closer to God. So if I meditate or if I pray and I go through the motions, let's take prayer, right? I can end up on a ramiumptum, just saying the same things without thinking about it. And by the way, if you come to my house, a lot of the prayers sound like that. I'll be honest, you know, you come to the table and the Hurtado kids are praying and I feel like this is just the Ramiumpton. You know, we look at that story and we think it's about other people. No, it's about us. It's about us unless it's not, right? So the question is, are you thinking about what you're praying? Are you thinking about what you're doing? Are you having an intent to be near to God? Intention makes all the difference. Why do you like your wife's sandwich or your mother's sandwich or your boyfriend's sandwich better than the one you can make yourself? Because there's something more in it than just ham and cheese and lettuce and tomatoes and mustard and mayonnaise and bread. It's the intention or the love or whatever it is that that person puts in it. There's a reality to that. Well, and kind of along the lines of what you're talking about here, and, and I'm, I'm going to take sort of an opposite tack and say that in the earliest phases, pre-adolescent emergence, spiritually speaking, there is a place for some blind obedience. Because first of all, children don't have at the earliest stages the ability to critically reason through things. And so they'll place their hand on the stove and burn it. And then it's like, oh crap, I had to do it that way. You know, I couldn't, mm -hmm. I couldn't just have someone tell me not to do it. I had to do it that way. 
don't don't run with a fork in your hand. Oh crap, I ran with a fork in my hand and I stabbed my stomach or something, you know? That's sort of the way we have to learn early on. And short of that is the space for obedience. But I think that's pre-adolescent emergence. Yeah, I'm not really thinking about phases and and so we should maybe try to fit this conversation into those phases. You're right. Well, and we don't have to shoehorn it in. I guess what I'm trying to do is give somewhat of a framework to people of what individual spiritual development might look like. By the way, it doesn't necessarily need to correspond to any specific age. Someone who is a spiritual initiate into a new order will be like a babe. They'll have very little familiarity with practices or rituals or doctrines or liturgy. And so they're going to need that childhood level experience to some extent in order to be able to progress on from that. And I think the things that you've identified are really important once we get past this phase of necessary blind obedience and we enter into the phase of questions. Yeah, you know, it's hard for me to sort of separate things out. I get where you're coming from. I'm thinking of a friend who, when he joined the church, he told me that a lot of his energy and focus, he felt like had to go into learning how to talk the talk and walk the walk. Not so much of, you know, walking the path of following Christ, but sounding like a Mormon, you know, saying it like a Mormon, doing it like a Mormon. And that was actually distracting for him because he already had a relationship with God. He already had been walking the the Christian path, as it were, you know, from his earlier tradition. But don't you find this true that sometimes you need to descend again? You need to walk back the things that you already were familiar with or you already knew in order to make that that leap into the next stage of faith development. So, I mean, I I can 100% relate with what you're saying. I, I had what I felt like was a very strong spiritual sense prior to joining the church. I think most of my friends that I associated with would tell you the same thing. I had a regular scripture study practice every night. I prayed. I sought. I was constantly seeking. And yet I didn't have structure nearly as much as when I entered into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so I think there was this necessary part of my evolution that did involve a high level of conformity to the practices. Yeah, I'd have to agree. And the language, right? And speaking the words. Mm -hmm. When I was studying Arabic in Jordan, it came to the attention of my teachers that I had really good calligraphy as they saw it. And I thought so too. I I I tried to do a good job, but I had never had anything more than the basic instruction of, you know, we're just here to learn the alphabet so we can write, so we can use this language, right? No calligrapher around to even teach me. I was encouraged by my Arabic teachers to seek out a calligrapher, and I never found one. When I studied Arabic abroad again, a couple of years later in Syria, I did find a calligrapher. And lesson one was, forget everything you've been taught. If you want to come to me and learn calligraphy, you're going to start at zero. And I had to draw over and over again, Aleph, 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 you know, just making a, a straight line over and over each letter, over and over and over. No, don't do it like this. Do it like that. This is how the stroke goes. Dip your reed in the ink, what, you know, and the patience and the painstakingness of it. It's not something that I was familiar with. I heard a a professional calligrapher say the same thing. When he went to his first teacher, he was told the same thing. doesn't matter what you think you know. You're starting at zero. If you want to learn from me, we start from zero. I mean, this is Karate Kid, right? 
Daniel comes to Mr. Miyagi and he says, teach me karate. Like I saw you beat those kids up or whatever. And, and he says, take everything that you've done and forget it. I'm going to teach you how to paint a fence and sand a floor and wax a car and break you down physically until you're at the most basic level of understanding. He had some experience with karate. He'd taken some karate classes, you know, and he thought he was pretty hot stuff and he just needed to tweak it a little. And and Mr. Miyagi, the, the consummate master archetype, breaks him back down again. And I think we need to experience that. At various stages throughout our spiritual development, we need gurus. We need masters. Yeah. We, need a, we need mentors. We've had our episode on mentor, which I'd encourage you to go look up. I, I think that's an important part of development through various stages. I've had many mentors as you, as you have in, in your development. And I think those are very necessary because they remind us how little we know. Yeah. And I still do, you know, I still have mentors to this day. Likewise. So coming through that kind of child stage, we, we start to exit the, the blind obedience phase where we're kind of just learning how to do the things and not really thinking too deeply about what those things represent or why we're doing them. We're just doing it because it's the thing to do. We're in that community. We're in that family. We're in that culture. And we just do the things. And then we start to emerge. There's this period of time when, when all of a sudden the thinking light bulb turns on and we're like, okay, I have a question about this. That becomes a spark for moving in the next direction. Yeah. And by the way, you know, I've talked about my kids and how we do it. And yet I should mention, you know, for the record, I mean, my kids are pretty awesome if I do say so myself and other people say the same thing. And yet they're teenagers and they're not always interested in learning more now. And I say now, I mean, it's Sunday afternoon and they might rather be doing something else right now. And they haven't reached that point where they have those questions. Now I'm trying to awaken them to those questions, but if they're not ready, they're not ready. Well, and that speaks to the the word responsibility, right? As much as parents want to force this upon on their kids or anyone else, until that spark of curiosity moves them in the direction of responsibility and wanting to take more personal autonomy and ownership of the situation, it's really tough to just coerce kids into this. Yeah, the best we can do is be an example, and that's all I'm really trying to do. And asking them to show up. I'm going to say, here's what I've been learning. And I'll ask them, you know, what have you been learning? They go to seminary, they go to classes at church, and they are supposed to be studying on their own too. And they say they do, they read, and they they think about what they've read. And so they share what they're, what they're thinking and what they're learning. I share what I'm thinking and what I'm learning. And if nothing else, I'm an example of another way of doing it. Maybe even on another level, depending on who I am vis-a-vis whoever I'm talking to. Well, and one of the things you've done a good job with is is arming your kids with those tools that are going to help them progress from one phase to the other. I mean, I think of those tools that just by themselves naturally are going to lead kids into that phase where they start asking questions. It's it's the reading, it's journaling, it's meditation and other contemplative practices that open them up to the possibility of those questions arising. And then those questions are beautiful moments. Those are really the breaking forth of a new person. It's like the the emergence of a flower from a bulb. As soon as those questions are asked and the curiosity is sparked, there's a real opportunity for growth in that phase. It's really cool. You know, I can think of a recent question I got from my 14-year-old son. 
you know, I'm sharing some of the conversations we're having here on the podcast, you and I, Riley, and with our guests about the divine feminine. And I start getting questions that just really surprise me about the divine feminine. And I'm happy to field them. I'm glad that what I'm sharing is causing those questions to start to bubble up. Yeah, there's almost nothing that gets me more excited than when my kids ask me a question like that. And one of the things that actually has sparked quite a few questions and conversations in our in our household, and one of the easiest ways to engage that is just watch something like The Chosen. You know, it's something that takes a low level of commitment to do it, and it sparks quite a few questions. First of all, because it's entertaining. Yeah. I wonder if that has anything to do with what I hear is maybe there's something to do with taking a comparative approach, right? Because that's not from our church. It may look a little different from what we expected based on our experience of the representations of Jesus that we've had from our church. And maybe even there are even theological points of difference. My kids also have gone to the Baptist church, our neighbor's church, especially during the lockdown when there were no youth activities at our church. They attended those youth activities and I ask them, what did you learn? You know, they go, there's, you know, sports and games and fun and games and whatnot, but there's also doctrinal discussions that they've had. And so I just ask them, what are you learning? And, And they have questions. So I think taking that comparative religious approach, even at that age, again, you can help me fit it into a stage or age, but I do the same thing. There's holy envy, there's looking for similarities and differences, and you can really, when you compare and contrast, you can really come to understand both better. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I said I said first because it's entertaining, but secondly, it's also because there's some speculation involved. And speculation is is kind of like this genesis or this early seed of these questions, right? I think speculation's great. Speculate. Think about things, you know, go off on tangents and think what if or why not? And when you do that, it's mind expanding. It opens you up to all kinds of possibilities. So you're watching The Chosen and of course, in order for it to be a real engaging dramatic series, there's quite a bit of speculation that needs to take place because the text itself might be lacking in detail. One of the things that The Chosen has done very well is it's filled in a lot of the blanks. And of course, it's speculation. But I love that because that is what initiates so many questions from from my kids when they watch it is like, did that really happen? Or, or why did he say this about that? I remember the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus on the rooftop speaking about the spirit and how it relates to the wind. And that conversation was a great place for me to discuss the reason why wind and spirit were connected in that conversation by Jesus, because they come from the same word, the word ruach in Hebrew and ruha in Aramaic was a word for both things that was used interchangeably as a device to teach that lesson to Nicodemus. And I had that conversation with my son and that was an awesome conversation. I loved it. Yeah. Not only those two, but the life breath, same word, all three life breath, Holy Spirit and the wind are all one word in the original Hebrew. Neil Douglas Klotz takes it a step further and he says it's the space between everything in the universe. He says it's really kind of the the organizing space. Everything is contained within the Ruach. I love it. That's a great way to look at it too. It You know, that sounds a lot like something Joseph Smith taught. I believe it was in the King Follett sermon or the King Follett discourse as it's variously known. And he says, there's no such thing as empty space. It's all full of the spirit. If it's not the same teaching, it's very nearly identical. Yeah. 
It's great. Well, let's kind of continue on then. So we're in this this phase of spiritual adolescence, and I think some of the things that mark this phase or that characterize it might be more alone time, and you'll witness this if with your teenage kids. They spend more time by themselves in their rooms. They're rarely in silence. That's that's one thing that I wish there was more of is just more silent time, more reflective time. There are the one-off kids who are kind of unique that will spend time with a journal or just writing poetry or maybe just in deep thought about things, but eh, it's not very characteristic of the generation with the overwhelming mass of media that we have available to us to sit in silence. Nevertheless, there is more alone time. I want to say a couple of things about that, Riley, because I think, you know, I've heard so many parents, I, I often speak at least once or twice a year. I speak at homeschool conferences. I'm a homeschool dad. I speak at those conferences. I share ideas. I taught at Monticello College for a while. You know, so I, I hear parents saying, my kid just spends too much time on the phone or on the iPad or on the TV or whatever. I don't know what to do. And I think, wait a minute, who's the parent? Who's the kid? I mean, if I don't want my kids to be on the phone, I just don't let them be on the phone, right? That's that's kind of up to me. I, they don't. None of them have been able to buy a phone on their own. If they have a phone, it's because I gave them one, and I only gave it to them so they could listen to books and listen to music while they read. You know, not for texting, not for social media, not even for internet access. So there's that. You know, and I've been able to cultivate a family culture of reading. Right by just that's just what we do when we get in the car. We listen to books. They've been doing that since they were little. We know we we love to watch movies, but usually we've read the book and now we're watching the movie and we're saying the book is better. Right? It happens every time. We still enjoy watching those movies. We watch them together. We watch them on the weekends, but we're not watching TV for hours every day. We're we're reading books and we're discussing. We're sitting down at the table and you know. Silence is nice too, right? I take a minute before prayer to just say, everybody take a deep breath. To me, sometimes that's worth more than the the blah, 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 especially if it's Rami Empton style, right? We already know, I already know what they're going to say. God already knows what they're going to say. What's the point in that? Let's just take a deep breath. So we take a deep breath, another two or three deep breaths, and then we pray. And who knows, maybe you don't even get a Rami Empton prayer. Well, and going back to the discussion about Ruach, I mean, taking a deep breath is literally inviting the spirit. Yes, indeed. Inviting the wind, inviting the breath. It's the same thing. So, you know, I love what you did there. You described not only the reality of the situation, but also some tools and and some helpful things. And I think one thing we want to provide in this episode and throughout the podcast is always give people some, some tools to work with. And, you know, we've mentioned in the past Lectio Divina, Divine Reading, I think adolescence is a great time to introduce this. Oh, yeah. Because this is the time in their life when they're going to seminary sometimes or they're they're being introduced to private scripture study. Unlocking the tool of what scriptures can be for them is is super important and, and a great way to move them into the the mode of individual spiritual development. So if you're not familiar, we did an episode on Lectio Divina a while back. I'm not sure of the number, but essentially the the method of Lectio Divina is to read. And, you know, obviously this works great in scripture. It can work in many other modes as well, whether it's with literature or other sacred works, not of our canon. But reading is the first step. And as soon as something jumps out at you, then you meditate on that. Whether it's a word or a phrase, meditate on that. Adopt that as a, as a mantra, that phrase. 
and meditate on it for a while. And once you've done that, then then pray on it, essentially inviting God into the conversation and see if there's some some additional thoughts that come from that. And then after that, it's just a matter of sitting on it, sitting with it, and being with it. That's the contemplative phase of Lectio Divina. And once you've gained all the insight that you can gain from something so simple as maybe even just a single verse, then the invitation is to act upon it. And I think that model is is great for teaching adolescents and maybe even younger if they're ready for it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, you reminded me when you said, you know, you read and then you stop as soon as something stands out. And then later on, you said one verse. I mean, you're not talking about reading a lot necessarily. It doesn't have to be. It's just you read until something stands out, right? I mean, it could be right. the first thing you read, the first verse you read stands out. Whatever it is, you're listening. And this is not about the words on the page. This is about the space that you talked about earlier that also exists between those words, between those lines. It's entering into that space with God and being present to his presence in that space. Well, and you talked earlier about the importance of context. There's also a time and a space where context can be a distraction. And I think this is one of them. As you're doing Lectio Divina, if you read and you read a single verse and a word jumps out at you, it's more about how you feel in that moment than what the word means in context to that situation or the verse. And, and so Lectio Divina, the reason why it's great at this stage of development is because an adolescent or a teenager, whomever, they don't need to know the context, but they get practice in feeling the word yeah. and reacting to that. Yeah, for me, there's a place for both, and I think it makes sense to separate them. I struggle sometimes with this as a teacher, as a father, as a podcaster even, in separating those two things. I find value in each of them, and I feel like they're separate activities, you know? Absolutely. Kind of moving through, again, through the development, the individual spiritual development, and the responsibility we take, I think I see myself in this next phase. Definitely not a master guru, but a person who has who has moved through the early stages of blind obedience, of question and answer, of starting to form an identity. And now I'm through this, this phase, in this phase of, of sort of stripping out identity so that I can figure out what's at the core, what's most important, and what's going to guide me through the next, let's say, 40 years of my existence, whatever I end up being. Maybe tomorrow is the end, but whatever that time period is, kind of settling in on on what my spiritual development is going to look like, the way or the path. How about you? Yeah, you know, to tie together the last phase with this phase, I think the reason why you're right in saying that a good time to introduce Lectio Divina is in adolescence, right? And by the way, you can ask children how they feel about what they're reading too. It's a little bit different, right? But you can just read something and ask them how they feel is the idea that I think what it's teaching us to do, and I think where we're going with this to end up where we are now in this phase, because I see myself in the same phase where you are, is to be able to get to a place where it's not about, again, there's a time and a place for finding out what's the historical context, what do these words mean in that context. And to me, that's part of laying a foundation to then ignore it all, so to speak or having it in mind, but to set it aside and to ask my own soul, to ask the spirit, to breathe in the spirit, the ruach, the life breath, to feel the wind blowing through my hair, 
that's an inside joke. There's no video into here. Your lungs rushing into your lungs, <laughs> into my lungs, right through my lungs. Yeah, there you go. The inside yeah. joke is that Christopher is bald. <laughs> <laughs> so this next phase, what we might call spiritual maturity or adulthood, is really characterized by incorporation of a lot of insights and practices that you've developed over a long period of time. We're kind of there with the rituals. I, I remember after I joined the church, one of one of the first things I did is I memorized the sacrament prayers. Not not only because sometimes I was asked to bless the sacrament, but also because sitting in the the congregation, I also wanted to know, and this is so stupid, but this was just me. I wanted to know when a mistake was made so that I in concert with the bishop could sort of like look up and be like, oh yes, he definitely needs to repeat that sacrament prayer because he missed the or of, you know, some article, some insignificant thing. I was in that moment for quite a long time. And I would still call that spiritual adolescence where I was just so focused on all the things being in a proper order, doing things according to a, a certain template and in a very specific prescribed way. And moving into this phase of my life now, I I actually love it to take the same example and kind of extrapolate from that. I love it when you get a kid blessing the sacrament and he's fumbling and he's trying his best and the bishop just recognizes that the spirit of that spoken prayer was accurate and he nods his head and says, yeah, you're fine, buddy, to paraphrase. I love that. And that's kind of where I find myself now is in this place of grace and forgiveness. And I'm a lot less literal, a lot more in general, just more forgiving and and filled with a sense of spiritual patience as to these stages of development. Like, yeah, I recognize that it's important to get that prayer right, especially in the early stage of development, right? We got to, we got to learn all the things, but that's just one example of a way in which I I feel an orientation and an openness to sort of the, I guess you'd call it the atonement. And it's that grace-filled spirit of just forgiving and everything's okay. It just is. In the end, they're all just words, right? I mean, just like the words on the page, the spirit is in the space between the words. It's not in the words. The words are just words. The words are trying to express something that really is ultimately inexpressible, ineffable, right? From from the Greek to mean sayable, right? They're they're unsayable. They're ineffable. Of course, we have to say something. We have to say the prayer. And so if you don't understand that, then you think the words are so important. But once you understand that, you realize they're just words. And that's where that spirit that you that you said the bishop noted. When that's present, that's really all that's needed. Yeah, and there's this coming together moment where the whole congregation, and you've experienced this, I'm sure. Let's say it's a kid's third go-round trying to get this specific prayer done right. It's his third or fourth go-around, and everyone in the congregation at that moment is praying for this kid. To me, that's just, that's a beautiful moment, actually. And it's actually created by the mistake. Yeah. And we're probably also all thinking at that point, okay, even if this fourth attempt doesn't nail, that's good enough, right? Even if it doesn't get nailed this time, it's okay. We get it. It's like, I thought it was super important to get it right. And that's why we did it a second time. But by the fourth time, I'm thinking, you know what? I think God gets the point. 
We can move on. Well, it sort of becomes a metaphor for life too, right? We just keep trying and keep trying. And at a certain point, God's like, you know, the effort is appreciated. So well done, thou good and faithful servant, you know, come and enter into your kingdom. Amen. So moving through this phase some more, I think we find in this phase that if you're doing it right, there's a lot of deep and repetitive shadow work and integration. You're, you're much more focused on what, what lack I yet versus, you know, who am I now and, and what am I doing right? And I'm doing all the things, right? I'm, I'm participating and checking all the boxes, but what lack I yet? It's that, it's that shadow side. And I think you become more focused on that the further into this phase you get. And if you ask that question with true intent or any question for that matter, you know, I mean, it's incredible because it's not about quoting scriptures. It's not about someone else's authority. It's about your own authority. Who's the author? That's authority and author are related etymologically. Who's the author of your book of life? You are. There's a sense in which we have to be, as much as we've been talking about, I guess we could call it educating our children, there's sort of a de-education process that has to happen. And that's something we have to take on our, on our own. It starts again in adolescence with questioning what we've been taught and continues into this mature phase of asking ourselves, right? We don't maybe realize this always, but we're really asking ourselves. We're asking God. We are God. God is within us. The kingdom of God is within us. The divine is a part of us. We're an image. We're created in the image of God. So when we ask that question of ourselves, we're asking our souls, we're asking the divine within ourselves, we're asking God. It's all the same question. The question is always pointed in the same direction, regardless of which way you think about it. And so if you ask yourself right now with true intent, right, what lack I yet, you'll get an answer. My wife is a health coach by training. She doesn't practice one of the reasons she had a hard time figuring out how to make a go of practicing is she's the health coach who has really nothing to teach you. She knows a lot, but it's not about what she knows. It's about what you need to do that you know, and she's going to get that out of you. And that's valuable. I don't know that everybody can recognize that. She may have felt insecure. I don't know about you know getting people to see that, but I find it extremely valuable. If I want to know what to do for my health, I ask my wife and she says, the answer is in you. What do you need to do? And right away, I ask myself, what do I need to do? And right away, I get the answer. I need to drink more water or whatever it is. You can do the same. Ask yourself, ask your soul, ask God. Well, I think your prayers in this mature phase of spiritual development become much more like that. They're contemplative. In your prayers, you realize that you're not telling God anything he doesn't already know. And there's no more validity or importance to your questions than there is to the pleas of a starving kid in Africa or something like that, to use kind of the trite expression. And and so what I'm getting at there is that you start to realize that you really are laying on the couch of this internal psychologist that's helping you understand what you need to know. And you already know it at some level. But by voicing the words in prayer, a lot of times it's revealed to you more explicitly. Taking this approach to creeds and dogmas and practices that you've become accustomed to, coupled with prayer, helps us to unlock the truth for us in how we're going to develop going forward. 
Yeah, you know, a main theme in spiritual development on this podcast in a spiritual life is the idea that at some point you find yourself as Dante did in a dark wood. And that's where your spiritual development begins. And by the way, that means a descent, right? There's a descent that happens down through Inferno before you get to climb Mount Purgatory and fly through the heavens to to be with God, right? It starts in that place where you have questions, where you have doubts, where where you're not quite so sure anymore. When I say that, I'm reminded of a great book. I was talking with, with one of my mentors, David Peck, about this. David's my Sufi master. He, we're talking about Augustine's Confessions. It's such a great book. When Augustine is sure of himself, he's a bore. But when he's not, when he's not sure of himself, oh, then you can really identify with him as a human being, as a fellow human being, right? We've all been there. Maybe you're there now. Maybe you are in some areas and not in others. I think of the idea from Stephen Covey's book, Spiritual Roots of Human Relations where he goes into the idea of days of creation. And he, he says, look, some of us are on day one in one area and day five in another. And maybe our spouse is on day five in the area where we're in day one, and they're in day one in the area where we're in day five. And that's where lifting each other comes into play. So this is a group project too, right? We're here doing it together, Riley. We've been, we've been growing spiritually together through these conversations We've invited the listener to come along with us, right? We're choosing to follow Christ. He says, come follow me. We follow. We invite you to, to follow along with us in our family activities and in in the teaching opportunities that we have. Let's not forget that our children are teachers too, right? There's that too. Well, one of the other things I see in this phase that kind of marks it as being separate or different from that adolescent or childlike phase is a reduced reliance upon ego defenses. And there's just a greater sense of honesty about who we are in the moment right now. You know, when I just had a sort of a, I'm going to reveal too much maybe, but my daughter doesn't really listen to this podcast. So I just had kind of a frustrating conversation with my daughter regarding attendance at seminary. Every time I would put forth a proposition of some sort, there was an immediate pushback. Well, I'm not doing it to do this or that to this. And it just, there was so much ego defense in it. And when I noticed it, I just felt like, okay, I need to back off because she's in that fight or flight mode, that defensive mode. And that's just different than where I'm at in my life right now. Like when you or anyone else points out my deficiencies versus me 15 or 20 years ago, I'm so much more open to it because I know that that's going to help propel me into another stage of growth. And I don't necessarily even need to accept the truth of what someone is describing about me. It might just be the perception that they have, but nevertheless, it still gives me room for improvement on how can I communicate a a better sense of self when I'm in the company of others. And so just the independence that you get in this phase also comes with a lot more honesty. And with that greater sense of honesty, I think there also comes a little more confidence in the direction we're going because it's something that we've we've developed over time and we've started to acquire this independent vision for not only where our path is taking us but what that destination looks like i guess what i'm getting at there is that the easy canned answers or the ones at least that that's kind of a a negative way to to say it but 
the answers that we were given in the earliest phases of development that we were initially taking as literal and complete truths, we, we've started to unpack those a bit. And when we do that, we start to acquire nuance. Resulting from that is a very unique and individualized vision of where we're going. And I think that's the importance of honesty and the acquisition of that critical reasoning ability conjoined with honesty that leads us into this next phase of of confidence in our spiritual direction. Yeah, thinking about that dark wood again, thinking about that honesty you talk about. I, I remember something that David Peck taught me, you know, that is that as Sufis, we welcome a faith crisis because it tells us, oh, I've been putting my faith in the wrong thing or in the wrong place or in the wrong way or in the wrong emphasis or whatever, right? And so I welcome that knowledge. Thanks for telling me. Like you said, if, if there's something you need to learn and I'm telling you, you're open to learning, right? And so when we come to when we can come to that place of honesty with ourselves and with God and be in that space and be okay, you know, with the spirit there to to sure us up, you know, to know that if we had the wrong idea about something, that it's a good thing that we figured that out. And that opens up the possibility of the next level, which again, may not be the right way of thinking about it, but it's the way that we're going to think about it now. And so it's important, I think, given that, that that's still not the final answer, likely that we be open and that we be, we have some epistemological humility, as it were, so that we can not hold on so tightly to our beliefs you know, have faith, have faith in God, but what is God? Who is God? Is God masculine or feminine or both? How many body parts does God have? How many persons is God? You know, as mystics, as contemplatives, when we sit with God, when we be with God, we don't actually experience any body parts. I haven't. Have you? I haven't experienced any body parts. I haven't experienced any genders. I haven't experienced any persons, you know, whether one, two, or three. I just experience peace. I experience love. Well, and I I love the humility that you talk about there because the it does a better job of describing the type of confidence that I'm trying to outline here. The confidence that you build as your as your beliefs start to strengthen and you start to crystallize and and things become more concrete is is not in the beliefs themselves, but it's sort of procedural confidence. Like you figured out how to arrive at something that works for you. And again, this is all part of, it's another rung on the individual spiritual responsibility ladder is that knowing we are taking responsibility for these things, it carries a little more weight. And so you want to arrive at these, these beliefs that you have, or this method or this path with that humility that you describe. And so going into, it's almost oxymoronic somewhat because you have confidence in the humility. That procedure of approaching things with openness and humility gives you confidence that you can do so profitably, that you can arrive somewhere profitably because it's done without the ego involved. And this is, I think, a critical area for crossing the next threshold from spiritual maturity into self-mastery. Again, I'm not there, but I can kind of envision what that looks like and essentially it's carrying with you this epistemological humility and confidence 
into the next phase so much so that you're still retaining an openness to truth and you're not emotionally invested in the things that you believe, but yet you've seen the outcome and the experience of what the things that you've experienced have done for you. And that gives you the confidence to be able to teach another person. I wouldn't say it's a guru phase necessarily, but self-mastery, knowing what works for you. Well, you know, speaking of gurus, that reminds me of something I read in Ram Dass's book, Be Here Now. He talks about people coming to the realization, I am Christ. You know, he talks about somebody, he, I think it was his brother, a family member, somebody who knew that decided that he was Christ. And Ram Dass says, yeah, me too. But his brother, whoever it was, said, no, 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 I mean, like, I'm Christ. And so what happened is he brought his ego with him when he, be, it's like, yeah, you're Christ, so am I. But if you think I am Christ means I am the only Christ, then your ego is still there with you. You forgot to leave that behind. Does that make sense? That's perfect. That's exactly how I was trying to express it is, and that distinction is a good one in your example of someone saying, you know, I am literally the Christ. Like that's fully ego driven. Whereas someone says, I am Christ, they're participating in the, the Christ consciousness. Totally different approach and realization there. One being associated with humility and another one with some sort of a pride. So, you know, taking this, this mantle of responsibility for our own spiritual development comes with quite a bit of risk. And I think that the leaders of the church recognize this, but the, the, the corresponding and opposite risk of this is that when we place all the responsibility for our spiritual development in the institution of the church, it's going to let some people down, a good number of people down. And it's not the church's role either. Let's remember. So this right. is covered by Covey. You know, Brother Covey in his book mentions the whole point of the idea of the book of the divine center, right? Is that the church is scaffolding for the family. The family is the basic unit of society, whether it be in a secular society or whether it be in God's kingdom, right? The family is the basic unit. So the church is really there to support the family. It's scaffolding for the family. The family's where it's at. Yeah. So the risk that comes with giving the church too much responsibility for your spiritual development is that you're ignoring that basic unit, that family responsibility for development. And I don't know if this is an exact comparison, but what comes to mind for me is this, this phrase, the arm of flesh. When you trust in the arm of flesh versus trusting in, in God and that that basic support system within the family unit. Going into Covey's book some more, you know, the point of the divine center is that each of us center our lives in Christ and that all other centers are false centers. And that includes, in Brother Covey's words, the church as a center. The church is not the center. Christ is the center. And by the way, this is the one that struck me the most. In a marriage, you're not spouse-centered. If you are, you're doing it wrong, he would say, right? The idea is Christ is the center. And what I love about that, as he points out, is that if I have Christ at the center of my life and my wife has Christ at the center of her life, we share the same center. If she's centered on me and I'm centered on her, we don't share the same center. It doesn't work. Well, and immediately what's coming to mind for me is certain aspects of the temple that join a, a husband and wife in that relationship with Christ as the center. And I'll let those who have had that experience ruminate on that a bit. Reflect. Reflect, yeah. yeah. So the opposing risk to putting your trust in the church is, is going the opposite direction on the pendulum and 
And there's a lot of risk in spiritual autonomy, is there not? So I'm reminded of something we heard. I know you listened to this episode too on a Faith Matters podcast with Michael Wilcox. He talks about a navigator's compass as having two feet. As navigators, we use this compass to measure on maps or charts as we call them in navigation, right? And so one of the feet of the compass we put in a fixed position. The other one can reach out and extend and search. Think of yourself, as Michael Wilcox put it, as with that fixed foot in Christ at the center, and then reach out with that other foot. Right on Christ as the divine center. That's better. And I kind of envision it like if the, if the family's doing things right, and the church is doing things right, and society's doing things right, then it's going to look like concentric circles around that fixed foot centered on Christ. And when things get out of balance or a little wonky, those circles are going to wander a little bit. And it's when we put too much emphasis or trust on one of those outside concentric surrounding circles that maybe we can lose our fixed foot. But that searching foot, as, as you mentioned of Michael Wilcox's uh, metaphor here, is, is meant to be out there drawing concentric circles and pulling in more information. And the further that foot reaches out, the more information you can pull in much of it beneficial for our spiritual development. Much of that episode, by the way, was about sacred texts from other traditions and other great literature that teaches truth. I think Wilcox called it the Eastern Standard Works, called them the Eastern Standard Works, and he was referring to like the Tao Te Ching and Mencius and the Bhagavad Gita. He also went into like uh, all the other literature. There's truth in fiction, right? When I taught writing at college, you know, there were students when we wrote something that was supposed to be autobiographical, they really struggled with, but I don't remember what I ate that day. It doesn't matter what you ate that day. Tell us what you usually eat. That's good enough, right? So that episode really was about reaching that searching foot out there with our fixed foot in Christ. This is what we're saying, right? It's not about having the fixed foot in the church. It's about having the fixed foot in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, that's as we understand it. We understand that the church is trying to teach us that. But again, have we understood it correctly? And can we go out there, as I suggested earlier in this episode, in the beginning, and look for other sources that can confirm, that can deepen our understanding, that can bring nuance to our understanding, that some holy envy maybe, I really feel like a comparative approach is so helpful. I think it's part of my philosophy is I'm an educator and part of my philosophy of education is that it really takes a dialectic, right? You have to look at both sides. I love Al Jazeera's slogan, the other, other side of the story, right? Something like that. Mm. Not just the other side, but the other, other side. I'm always looking for what's the opposite. This is how we learn. I mean, this is in, in a dualistic world, right? In the fallen world, that's what there is. You know, is if you're going to deal in all the things that are out there in literature, in textbooks, in words, then there's that. The only other option, again, is the contemplative one where you turn inward and you ask your own soul. And in that, you're asking God. And then you go straight to the source. And that's something that, again, President Nelson has been telling us, right? That we're supposed to be looking to God, not to the church. Yeah, or relying too heavily, at least, on the church, right? For that specific spiritual development. That's got to come from within. 
yeah, again, we get some, I don't know whether to call it a contradiction or nuance. Let's say nuance where, okay, you, you can ask, but don't ask about the things that have already been answered. Yeah. I mean, we have to have our own confirmation of whatever it is. And we have a right to it. We have a right to it. We can ask God and we can get the answer. Well, Chris, as we wrap this up, I, I guess not having the experience of really living in that self-mastery phase myself yet, but having read plenty of books on faith development, whether it's McLaren or Fowler, we recognize in this last stage, what this, this self-mastery or guru stage, that there is a deep and abiding sense of peace. There's much less ego attachment. The mentoring of others doesn't happen from the master themselves. It's usually initiated by someone who wants knowledge. No one's putting themselves out there as as masters. They're very comfortable where they're at and confident where they're at, but they're not using it as a bludgeon or a, a tool of judgment against others who aren't where they are. And so I think all of this is the culmination of many, many years of sometimes painful development through a sense of their faith and where it's going to take them for the rest of their lives. And, you know, again, I'm not there. Chris, you said you're not there. No, I'm not. But I think this path of development is important for us to embark on. And it is important for us to take individual responsibility for doing it. Yeah. You know, a guru, a spiritual guide, let's say they've had some kind of enlightenment, but here's the thing about enlightenment. Enlightenment isn't a one-time event. You're enlightened until the next time. And it's something that has to happen over and over again. And a guru has experience of that. We've talked about the words, and we've talked about the ineffability of God and the experience of God. And so a guru, a spiritual guide, has had that experience and shares guidance, not answers. My teacher has nothing to teach me. You think, well, what do you need a teacher if he has nothing to teach you? Because what he's doing is sharing his experience of me of how to take an inner journey to one's own soul, where the answers are found. They're not found in the guru. The guru is you, by the way. That's what I just said. Ram Das puts it that way and be here now. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go to India. You don't have to go to Salt Lake. You don't have to go to Mecca. You're already there. Tell us about realization. It is. And just coming to that awareness and time, a lot of time. Becoming aware of who you are. Ye are gods. God isn't something you become. God is something you already are. What you become is aware. It's a realization, not a metaphysical change, an epistemological change, a change of mind. This is one way we can think of repentance. Metanoia is a change of mind. Well, we're becoming reconciled to the realization. Yeah. And speaking of repentance in that way, at the same time, it's not about morality. Morality gives us a good, solid base on which to stand and make the journey, but we have to make the journey. Just checking off all the boxes and doing all the moral things isn't going to get us there. That's a shell. That shell has to be there to protect the inner kernel. Without the inner kernel, it's just an empty shell. I remember in our episode with Phil McLemore, him saying that the purpose of that early stage, what you might call milk religion, is to give us a foundation for a moral, ethical, and responsible life going forward. But that's not the thing. That's not the thing. It's a great thing, but it's not the thing. And so I I think in the end, it's all about reconciling ourselves to what is, which is the really real, and that's the divine center, that's the divine nature, that's the God within, that's the kingdom within. And then seeing yourself 
within that creation over and over and over. Amen. Thank you for listening. Thanks to the LDPS team. We couldn't do this alone. I haven't been on social media in seven years, but recently the LDPS project has brought me back to social media, although I'm mostly just lurking. But thanks to Bethany for putting out those quote images and sharing the podcast when it comes out. Thanks to Ben for making everything work behind the scenes when it comes to that. Riley, I think today you helped us solve a a technical problem with the podcast. It happens. Catherine Knight Suntag's name was misspelled in the last episode and you fixed that. And we have, you know, Michael. Wow. I mean, just he's a perfectionist. I get it. Thanks to Kyle. Thanks to Tom. Thanks to Des. And thank you for listening. Please uh, reach out to us. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on all the social medias. We're on YouTube. I've got Google Juice. You can Google me. Send me a private message. Whatever. I'm open. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everyone.